0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy. I'm your host for today, and we'll be speaking with Bill Pollack from No Starch Press. But before we get going and talking about books and publishing and public charity and a whole lot of fascinating things, let me share with you briefly a message from our sponsor risk 360 is a cybersecurity technology and consulting firm that works with the high-growth technology firms to help leaders build, manage, and certify security, privacy, and compliance programs. They publish weekly thought leadership, webinars, and downloadable resources like budget and assessment templates. You can check out some of their offerings at risk360.com, resources. That's R-I-S-K-3, S-I-X-T-Y, dot com, resources. And now, of course, back to our show. It's my privilege to introduce to you a person that I've known for probably 20 years, and chances are you've met him more than once if you've been to any security conferences in the last couple of decades. Mr. Bill Pollack, thank you very much for being a part of our show.
1: Thank you for the opportunity. I've, we've talked about doing this for a little while. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's maybe a year. I don't know. But At now. least a year, maybe <laughs> more.
0: But uh, hey, could you tell us a little bit about yourself a little bit about your background?
1: So I I started No Starch Press in 1994, but before that, so I studied political science at a college in New England. I never intended to be a political scientist. I intended to be a biologist. And to anyone who's thinking about making that shift, because political science is more interesting than science, I say stay with science. But I chose that major simply because it was. I calculated. I've heard other people do this too. They. I was told I had to choose a major. I added up the credits. I realized I had more political science credits, so I said, "Fine, pick that." That was a, not necessarily a good move. I ended up after college going into a post-bac pre-med program. I was on my way to medical school, was guaranteed admission. I dropped out the morning of my first organic chemistry test because I wanted to learn science, and that's not what people were there for. So, I ended up going into medical book publishing at a company called Springer Verlag, which is this huge company now worldwide. And I used to rewrite the books about things like mitral valve transplants. I used to read the books. They were easy to read. I never had a problem with any of the medical stuff. And I would just rewrite it because it wasn't good. So I've been doing that since I started that in 87. I went into textbook publishing after that. And then I worked at treatment and company. I was a biology editor. I got back to my roots, trying to acquire biology books. In 1990, I'm very proud to say that I attempted to create A software-based molecular modeling kit, which would be very useful today because I got tired of building space filling, you know, like building ball-and-stick models. It's like, okay, that one took me 20 minutes to make. So in 1990, there was a product called Alchemy from Tripos Associates, which ran up a floppy and you could actually use wireframes and see, you know, structure and function, which is what was key. But I got fired from Freeman. One of the, one of the typical things in my business, book business, is that you have people who are fundamentally incompetent running company and they put all the onus on their editor. So they just go around and fire. They literally would, she, this person would fire one editor every few months and then just got around to me. One book, one book that I really wanted to do, which ended up on the market is called Machinery of Life, which has beautiful watercolor paintings of the interiors of cells. So the first edition came out from Springer Verlag, my old company looked terrible was black and white, beautiful four color illustrations. They made it black and white. The second edition, they made color. That was a book that I really would today still love to have on my list, but I know more about biology probably than I do, but actually doing computer security. Well, I don't know if this is true today, but certainly I could actually, I've actually studied biology where I haven't studied computer security, but I have worked extensively through many of the books that have built people's careers. Or so I'm told. Books from my list, like Practical Malware Analysis, I went through every line of that, or Serious Cryptography, or the Metasploit book.
0: Hacky art of exploitation. And and you've really become sort of the guy that everybody sees at the security conferences. so you ended up starting No Starch Press 30 years ago, so congratulations. I mean. A lot of companies never make it past one or two years, but here you are three decades later. That's absolutely awesome. Now, when you started No Starch Press, were you going to be focused on computer security or was it, it starting in biology and migrate over? How did you end up being in this space?
1: Oh, I forgot one important book publishing position. I After Freeman, I went to Osborne McGraw hill. Osborne was started by Adam Osborne, who wrote, who created the Osborne. Right. right. legible, but Adam was long gone. And I was making computer books. So I actually was, in, and some people were envious in this. I was making game, computer game books in 1990, calling on Maxis, which was down the road in Alameda. going to see Will Wright over there. Now he's like this, you know, Sierra Online games. So I made computer game books and I would edit these horrible big stat, you know, like documentation. The whole computer book business in the 90s was based around supporting piracy. Essentially, people would get early documentation that would rewrite it, and people would buy the documentation because they didn't get it, didn't have the product. That's changed over the years, but that was really boring to me. So I tried to do some other interesting things. I did the same thing that I do today, which is I would edit everything. My biggest success there was a book called Soundbush, the official book, for lack of a better name. Basically, people were trying to put in Soundbush or cards and couldn't get them to work. So we documented the tools that were in there, the software and such. And uh, basically, I think I lost five pounds editing that book because it needed a lot of wood. Not exaggerating. No, I can believe it. I, I, just, I
0: don't know if you'd recommend it as a diet program for people editing a book it, like that. But. It
1: worked for me, but I didn't actually use, need to lose the five pounds. I just did because I used when I was younger. I used to work like nonstop. Now I probably work nonstop, but not in, linearly. I just do a bunch of things. So that that and when I got fired from that job, I had a the, when I was hired, they loved me. And then there was a power vacuum. And then the new guy thought I was interesting to a point. And then after he was running around the office, punching the chairs, telling me I should go see a psychologist, he can't be. I am like, great. I had a business plan and I launched those charts. So the plan was never to do security, but to do tech books that had character. And I started by doing books like The I mean, Crafter's Computer Companion that basically showed you, it was way ahead of its time, how to use a computer for sewing and quilting. I did one on astronomy. I published the Guide to the Jewish Internet. I did a book on gardening and figuring everyone was using the web. But really, it wasn't that happening in 1994. I
0: remember in the early days, even before there was a Google search, I knew one person who basically had one of his books he published was really a list of all of his links, all the good, cool stuff that he had organized and cataloged and things such as that. I think his name was Armin Morin. And he made a small fortune that way by just saying, hey, I have indexed the internet and here's a gigantic hierarchical directory that you can look for things. And of course, Google drove that out of business very quickly. But early on, I think those of us who weren't there in the 90s kind of assumed that all the infrastructure that we rely upon was there and it really wasn't. And and so security books back then were kind of few and far between. They might've been technical in terms of either here's how to do stuff. He said they are focused on piracy, which I think was kind of interesting because I go back and look at some early books that we've had, and I've got a few up here on my shelf. And I think that some of those early volumes that came out there were a bit of a risk, I think, not only for the author, but the publisher, kind of like the old Abby Hoffman, Steal This Book, where it was a little bit of a countercultural, where even the title of the book says, well, go steal it. But were they that radical or were they really just technical people trying to make a point about here's how to use these new tools that are coming and how to make them more functional?
1: Well, so one book that put us on the map early when it came to security that actually brought me into the whole hacking slash security field was Steal This Computer Book, which I published in 1997. And we wrote the entire thing, the entire thing, and collected all the software. I had an author, but it needed a lot of work. Mm -hmm. So I did it. I almost canceled it. It went through two other editors. We put that out as an homage to Abby Hoffman. Then people will say, what a great title. And it's not my title really. But anyway, that, that book gave me a really interesting introduction to a lot of kind of the hacking underground and also the kind of things that people do. I think I followed, one, one thing that followed that was Crack Proof Your Software. I'd forgotten about that one. And that was someone who used to crack software. I used Asplavista too. And he basically, and I learned about, you know, how people chop out the number generator, the generator, the code generators, and then you realize where the cracks come from. It's like someone chopped out a bit of code and pushed it out there and made it into its own little application. That book didn't sell particularly well. Steele's computer book did sell very well. It was actually on the publisher weekly bestseller list for a time. It hasn't been revised for years. Cause it's, there's just a lot of work that has to be done. I would say the book that really. We have put us on the map was Hacking the Art of Exploitation by John Erickson. Mm -hmm. Met John at Rubicon, which was an interesting conference in Michigan. It was probably more black hat than anything. And uh, John gave a talk on a matrix for password cracking. And I thought, this is cool. This guy is the guy I want to meet. John had his own groupies. People followed John around. At that conference, everyone was ejected by the hotel the next morning. I didn't actually realize this. By canine dogs and police, I got up in the morning. Everyone was gone, What happened. I, I didn't get booted out because I didn't take a room under the hotel rate. They'd like the hotel showed discount rate. So that's a lesson to everyone. Just maybe you don't want to use the show rate if you're depending on your conference and I had to go find them. They were scattered around the city, but, but that book was the first book at the time, the books that people were buying were hacking exposed and not to take anything away from hacking exposed. A lot of them were foundstone people who've built their own businesses, very successful businesses. But a lot of those books were basically point and click, do this. And you know, here's an attack. And I would look through these and it's like, I'm not re- really, learning anything from them. So I published half the Order of exploitation, which basically shows you how attacks work with code. And that book is only, has only got through two editions. The last one was 2008 and it's still usually in my top 10 best stores. Wow. A testament to. The way you can make technical books that don't date by focusing on core topics that people can learn over time. Practical malware analysis is probably 11 years old. It's still by far the best-selling book on malware analysis.
0: And yeah, that's a very good point. I think I tend to be one of those people where people say, gee, Mark, when are you going to get your book out?" And part of me wants to say, "Well, I want it to be sort of evergreen. I don't want it to be, you know, Windows XP secrets or something <laughs> yeah. like that." Or you know, Going ahead in Internet Explorer 8 are tips and tricks, because those obviously come already with a fuse that's lit that's going to shorten it down. But I think you raise a very good point that there are some general topics, how to think about things, how to go ahead and get the mindset around being able to look at a system, as you say, as a hacker, as someone who produces an outcome, the designer of the program, the code didn't think of. You, you go ahead and you look at a system and you go, wait a minute, I didn't think about and then you pull something out and and it works. And that's some of that's intuition. Some of that is, I guess, sometimes just who you are, because I've always been able to do that. And I think that's attracted me to this line of work is ever since I had started working with systems, I could look at them and go "Mm, that thing right there. And do you find then that in reading these books that they help to impart that ability to gain those insights? Or does it simply, is it like someone trying to read a book on playing the piano, but they don't know anything about music. So they end up just pushing the keys in the right order.
1: I always have made sure that when we mentor our authors, that we're trying to, we try to get, try to bring their voice out. So Mm -hmm. you should feel like they're in the book. And we've, I have our editors focus on making sure that things are clear. We have editors in house and none of our competitors edit everything the way, no one does edit the way that we do. Mm -hmm. I used to rewrite six to eight books a year myself. I I haven't done that since serious cryptography. And and when I say rewrite, I go through and read every line. I spend an hour a page on that book. Mm -hmm. But my basic directive to the editors is when your mind starts to undercut. And if you're, and if you can't figure something out, try to puzzle through it. Editing, the editing process is a lot like writing code. When you're really dug into a book, you've got blocks of information in your brain. You're trying to reorganize it to make sense of I remember watching my son code. It's very similar. It's a very intense, it, it should be a very intense process. It's generally two to three solid hours where it, just as with writing code, if someone interrupts you, when you're trying to write a program, you basically have, you can spend an hour trying to get back to where. Right. You, were. you lose the bubble and you got to go all back again. <laughs> well, the whole flow of the program, what you're yeah. trying to do. So it's the same thing with text. If I would get interrupted, it's like. What, give me half an hour, I'll get back to where I was. So I expect a level of engagement from our editors with the author, where we're basically working with authors based on a series of notes that I've made over the years about things that we do when we edit. Look, we want to make sure that code is explained. We don't want to over explain the code. We don't want to just load code up code examples of something like in the case of our Metasploit book, which was by far the leading title Metasploit for years. Dave Kennedy has took the lead for the most part. So that book we Metasploit is a very chatty product and if you want to ha- know how stuff works, you push a button you'll get four pages of output. So when that book came to me after it, was, it went to another editor's hands, I said, what is this? Why, why do we need to read the output? I'll just push if I just want to get help, I just type uh, what is dash H and I have help. I don't mm-hmm. need to print it in the book. so I paired that code down and focused on make it's not code, it which is output focus on making it clear. So you understand that there's an option. Take a look at the options. These are the options to use. We all have limited time. So why do I need a thousand page book on this product? What? So what I think Mark Twain said, it, that I would have written a shorter book, but I didn't have enough time or something like that.
0: I would have written a longer, I would have written a shorter letter if I had more time.
1: Okay. All right. Okay. Thank you. Someone knows. <laughs> I should look it up. But anyway, but that's the point. It's like, it takes a long time to edit like that because you're editing like each line and basic overall structure. But that's what makes my book stand out in the market. I, we lease sales figures from Nielsen, which does TV ratings. They do book sales. And you go into these markets and you look for what's selling. It's like 300 copies, 200 copies. Oh, 3,000 copies or 6,000. this is the note chart. And this happened consistently. And sometimes it's 23,000 or it's 50,000. In in certain markets, there's a lot of overpublishing going on right now, due to the advent of print-on-demand. And companies who they've seen their sales decreasing. This is my estimate. No one's told me this, but they can see it. Their unit sales are increasing per title, so they just make more titles, which means less effort spent on making good books. I spend more effort on making good books every day. Every day I go to work, and it was interesting. I was reading something
0: I think just last night about. A generative AI tool that someone had open sourced. Who said you just give it the parameters of what you want, and it will write you an entire story, and then you can publish it. And so now what we're going to see is the signal to noise ratio is just going to go through the floor as all this stuff comes out there, and people have these me too things when it wasn't even me. But yet at No Starch, it's kind of standing uniquely to say no this is solid stuff and it represents not only well-written material but extraordinarily well edited and i personally i appreciate that because when i started working with sans uh geez more than a decade ago my first job was working as an executive editor in some of the white paper program and i was reviewing and writing and rewriting and i still have my strunken white that i can go look at and remember how all those little elements of style and the like but what was interesting is I found out that some people who were technically brilliant were quite honestly horrible writers when it came down to the English language. Yes. And sometimes the reverse was true, that people would write really tight prose, but they weren't saying anything of great significance. Kind of what you find?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I'm not going to give you a specific... Yeah, exactly. We don't mention authors. I can... You
0: never want to embarrass
1: anybody. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you, you know, people said something like, I didn't realize that this person would touch a good writer, and it's like, they're not. I mean, I rewrote everything. But... It's like good stage lighting. I don't, I've never put my name on the cover of a book, even though in many cases, people are actually reading mostly my writing. But yeah, I remember it, it, editing a
0: book but about 14 years ago, and I put an Easter egg in there because for years I've been telling people about G. Mark's law, half of what you know about security will be obsolete in 18 months. So I made sure that it worked its way into print. So now you can go ahead and reference it. Well, say, go look mm-hmm. at that book that was published way back when and it's like, oh, wow. And I never put my name anywhere on the book, even though I had done a lot of extensive work on it, because that wasn't my job. And so it's important that we stay in our lanes. And as you think about that, as people come up with ideas and say, I really know a lot about something, or I think I know a lot about something, what's a good way to validate whether a person does or does not have a book in in their mind? Can they come in there do they write a little outline and you look at it and you go meh or do you look at it and go tell me more what's the process if somebody is thinking i'd like to publish something how do they go about doing that
1: what, one thing that i always keep in mind is that if you say you want to write a book on a topic and i see that's cool that's only the beginning of the conversation because mm-hmm. what you have in your mind may be completely different from what i think should be done mm-hmm. so i want i every author to actually write a book proposal a full plan, just like when you go to build a house, you don't just say like, "I'm just going to build a three-story house. Looks like this. Great, let's start building it." Oh, we forgot. Oh, the beam doesn't go here, or we have no beams. Or there's no door out of the room, so it's like an architectural plan. You're building a thing. So I want to see not just the outline. I want to know the thought process, like what. So I like people to write not just a, a listing of chapters. I like to write what I call, for lack of a better term, a paragraph outline. Tell me the paragraph, what each chapter has. So you're basically writing essentially a synopsis of the chapter you haven't written. Someone who I think has the best chance of success will be able to write that. will be able to explain to you what's going to be in the book and also paint the picture of what the book will look like. A book is a physical object. I mean, ebooks are not, but I don't, I start with always print book first. So I say to authors, If you can picture the book in your mind and essentially turn the pages, you're well on your way. If you can't, I'll help you get there. I'm on author calls all the time. Now we went remote in March, 2020. So I mentioned to you before the call, I'm spending probably five hours a day on video calls. I used to reject every single one prior to March, 2020. No, I'm not getting out of, I'm not turning on the video. I'm not getting on the, now it's what I do all the time with my staff, who's in 15 different states and with authors. And I really enjoy the process of mentoring authors helping people to kind of get to the fun track, making sure they don't go down the primrose path that takes them up, totally off course. They write three chapters, which they throw out, or they forget that, like, if they don't write the outline, they'll be writing chapter six. This happens all the time and saying, oh, this should have been in chapter two. And everyone involved in the project is made crazy and authors lose steam. Another thing too, is what I recognize with the book business is that you would see You've probably seen these super Bibles that used to be published, these big, fat, giant tomes with nothing in them. I mean, literally <laughs> it's like, I, I'm very opinionated as you know, but I mean, but I'd look at it It's like, I remember looking at a book on networking and basically it was like, let's say a thousand pages long and 30 pages were used. So think about the individual writing this. I mean, in the era of chat GPT, maybe ChatGPT GPT, does all this stuff. I don't know, but take that person, like someone experienced like you and say, gee, Mark, forget about all this basic stuff. We're writing a book for experienced people. Right away, 500 pages don't get written because mm-hmm. they're like, oh, I don't think you give you all the basics. No, we're assuming that Rust for Rustations, one of a book that I publish, is for experienced Rust programmers. We don't have to go through cut and paste and turn the, push the power button. That's how computer books used to be written. Start from the very beginning, match the screenshots, screenshots everywhere. And as an experienced person, you're like, I don't need all this. So start with, I don't like to say intermediate because no one ever knows. You might say, I'm just kind of intermediate at this. Yeah. And you've been doing this for 30 years or whatever. You're not intermediate, but in your mind, the sharper you are, the more, you know, how, the more, you know, about what you don't like, I am I'll, so, so I think experienced, we all know we're, if we're experienced, so write something for the experienced programmer or write something for the experienced security professional. And there's, and more and more, there's an overlap, you know, think back 20 years. People were not writing code in security. You, when I published Python for kids, that used to be my best-selling book at hacker cons. It was now those kids, kids are adults and they're at the, ha- it was 40 year old guys. They're just very few women, especially, and I'm, I keep trying to do what I can to bring more women into this field, but it's like 40 year olds would just be picking up Python for kids. And I say, oh, you must have a kid. No, it's for me. My son gave a lecture on Python at ShmooCon one year. I think he was 15. All well, these people surrounding him listening, he's a computer scientist now. It's like, oh, your kid really knows this stuff. He did. And he actually was the tech reviewer on Python for kids. But the, the, we know that there are 10 year olds who can run circles around us. Right. Mm-hmm. But back then people were not coding, you know, and they would learn about writing extensions, writing stuff for Metasploit and H.D. was coding. HDMore was the wizard who could write code and actually used it. But, and it's not that people who couldn't weren't more any more equally brilliant, but it's just, we all have different skills. But now this this real merger. It's
0: larger. interesting. Yeah. Now, as you look at the books that you've published over these years, and there's been a lot of them, are there, you mentioned a couple of bestsellers. I think those was great. You almost kind of want to ask on the back end, are there some books that you publish that you kind of wish you didn't? And not to necessarily insult or dis an author, but just simply because a lesson learned. It missed the mark. Maybe the market had moved beyond the point when the book was addressed. Is there any lessons you learned on that to
1: what not? I learned one lesson when I published the book on overclocking. I used to be into overclocking. I had all the kits. I actually never used the kits. I didn't need to. I knew when they needed to do. So that's my nest speaking to you. Mm-hmm. So one thing I left out of the overclocking book was a section on cooling. It's actually key to overclocking. Yeah, I would hope so. I didn't notice it because I knew all about cooling. So. One thing is it doesn't, it's not necessarily helpful to find an expert to edit a book. It's often better to have someone who doesn't know who's learning from it. So that's one thing I learned from that. I've released books. I know I've hidden. Oh, I did a big fat book called the eBay price guide years ago. I'm talking big fat book, took a ton of time and I was so late to market. There were tools. Like it was basically a directory show. It made sense. It would have made sense five years before, Mm -hmm. basically like. What's sold for what? So you get a feeling for what kind of targets. I mean, it's an world. It's like, why would you ever do that? But at the time, you didn't necessarily have the kind of search tools. But by the time I released the book, there were great ways to find out what, that information and the book was useless. And we spent so many count, countless hours on that. I yeah, published the book. Yeah, please continue. I published a book called the computer phone book. This seems laughable today, but basically, and the whole companies have built businesses around this, basically like ways to dial companies, reach a live person. This was probably pre. This might have been pre-web. I don't remember. No, I don't think so. But anyway, it was a cool idea. I but it just didn't really. The market wasn't there. There was no need for it. And I was. And I didn't see. Well, I predicted the demise of the internet in 1994. I think, or the web. I just said the web. oh it's just like a public library. It's going to go nowhere. So I'm not a futurist by any means. But I've, I was early to market with certain books like The Gardener's Computer Companion. Now people are probably using software for gardening. People were doing, I mean, I could go on. But like, I've definitely missed markets. I've been either ahead of the market or behind the market. And you don't want to come out too early and you certainly don't want to come out too late. In today's world, with the advent of so many books, if you come out late into the like the machine learning market, like there are so many books that don't sell. You just become an also-ran.
0: Yeah, that occurs to me, as what I was getting ready to say a moment ago, is that with the machine learning and now with the generative AI, I would think that if you try to put a book out, it'd be obsolete in 45 days. I mean, we're just changing at such a rapid pace. It's almost as if to say, don't read about it. Just get your fingers on the keyboard and just spend hours with it and, until you start figuring it out.
1: I heard exactly that from, I was at MIT and I knocked on the door of a very high profile AI researcher. And I said, you know, a book publisher, he said, I will never write a book because because it'll be out of date in six months or less. So yeah, and- in that area, and that's what's happening. And that's not an area for us. We will be doing a basic book about how AI works. And this book is actually great because AI fundamentally, the basic stuff is probably not going to change that much, but all the applications and the latest advances and stuff that will change. But at core, AI is built on a core set of tools. So the people who learned about AI 20 years ago are not irrelevant to We're not, I am amazed by how many books are coming out on chat GPT. That seems pointless. To me. In the security field. I mean, when I talk about InfoSec, I, I tend to stay away from tools because the tools change too quickly. And focus on, for example, practical packet analysis, ways to use packets to analyze what's going on in the network. The most useful parts of the book for many people are the scenarios. And they'll just basically ignore the networking. I published the tcp IP guide in 2003 or 2005, and that was IPv6 throughout. That book still sells today, just the way it did when it came out. It was way ahead of its time. That book was early. No one was using IPv6, but now, well, probably still no one's using IPv6, but it's still relevant. Well, uh, if you look
0: actually at Google though, if, if you Google the term IPv6 adoption rate, you'll find that from Google, which they track all of their traffic over 40% now is IPv6 going from about 1% eight or nine years ago. And it, it, it's like, I wish my 401k were like that. I wouldn't be doing this anymore. I'd have my own island because it's just gone through the roof. And it's a normal process as we go there. And of course, that's just kind of foundational protocols. So, but let's go back to an author. So somebody has developed an ability, they're really good at something. Someone said, you ought to write a book. Or somebody says, I'd like to write a book. And then they look out there. And of course, there's all these publishers and things like that. What's the value proposition? for a potential author to come to No
1: Starch Press. Well, let's talk generally about the nature of the author book publishing arrangement. Whenever you sign a contract with a book publisher, you're giving up something. With a publisher, we'll pay you a royalty at some level, there are different things to look at in the publishing agreement. Like we pay a flat royalty, which is unusual in the business, as in if it's 15%, we're going to pay 50% at all uncertain sales period. We don't cut the royalty rate. We, it will increase for eBooks. It'll increase for foreign rights sales, but we're not cutting it for different types of sales. People are, you know, you're not a publishing professional, nor should you expect it to to, to be one. But there are certain aspects of the publishing agreement that authors don't evaluate. And it's, and what they'll see typically is, oh, this one's going to pay me 17%. Nostarge is only going to pay me 15%. But nominally, you might get effectively 6% because of the different types of cuts. People don't know how to evaluate that stuff. But publishing is a service business, number yeah. one. And this is going to tie to kind of the way i built my own business, right? So when you go to a publisher, you ought to get a level of service. Otherwise, why bother? Why not just do it yourself? we we'll do it on LeanPub. And and in some cases there's absolutely, you know, it makes perfect sense. If you've got a high profile and you, you can pull it together and you want to do the work, do it on LeanPub. You could do it on Amazon Create Space, but you'll see the way that Amazon effectively monetizes every bit of the business. So if you want real marketing support, that's one cost. You want a professional cover. That's another cost. You want a real editor. And when you add it up, it becomes very significant. But in some cases, the book is so popular that you don't need that. So that's where you look at it and say, well, what can this publisher do for me? And in some cases, the answer is I can do nothing more for you than they can do. But in cases where a publisher can help you get on track, edit the writing, help you to stay on schedule. Get the book into more than just Amazon channels, as in there are multiple sales channels around the world, sell foreign rights, get in the ebook vendors, just no. Get into actual bookstores because no bookstore is going to buy Amazon books. There's no, none, you know, maybe sell in other countries, physical books and such. Depending on what the person wants, those are things that a publisher can offer. But then to the author, the challenge is to ask those questions and ask before you sign the contract. I, I say to authors too, like if one first if a company sent you a contract that, and you don't have to sign it right away. If they're actually interested, if I say to you, this is interesting, talk to me. I've had people I signed six years after I met them, 10 years, 20 years. If I think the person's good, i look for the person first. If I'm interested, you know, I'm going to be interested in three weeks too. If I actually am interested. If all I'm trying to do is just get books signed and each editor at most companies, is incentivized to just acquire books. They're called acquiring editors for a reason. They just want to get stuff. And in today's world where it's all print on demand, which basically means effectively very little investment on the part of the publisher, it doesn't matter. It's like people are trained to say, well, what's your first printing? And people will tell you, well, you know, we print on demand. Why Why would you care about that? Well, if I print 10,000 10, copies of a book and it costs me $50,000, the argument is the publisher is making a significant upfront investment. They're not going to just leave your book behind. And we do print offset. We do print 5,000 copies. We print 10,000, sometimes 25,000, sometimes more. So that is a significant bit for me, but that's not why I'm choosing to back a book. I'm choosing to back a book because I believe in it. I think there's value in it. I think it can actually work. I don't just collect books. My company publishes maybe 30, 40 books a year max. And I have competitors doing 50 to 100 books a month. And if you think about it simply by the numbers, well, okay. Well, let's say you, that's an interesting option. You want you want one of their covers on your book, but what are they actually bringing to the table? If all they're doing is saying, we're going to throw a, a cover around the book and you are going to be part of our list. What does that actually mean? Companies that people have known and have grown up with have changed in direction, companies that you, you can think of who were like the standard for certain areas, like we, we took over the whole Python bookmark. Because our competitors just left it behind, but because they're doing trainings, they're focused on, we don't do trainings. It, I'm not against doing trainings, but I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to do like, I mean, if it also comes to us and says, well, can you, we want to do a book and we have trainings to do. It's like, well, I don't have a training or I make books. Yeah. And
0: understand what lane is. So kind of the question I was wondering, so you have to imagine a lot of listeners are probably wondering too, let's assume that I take the time and I write a book. <laughs> And the proposal's good, we write. It goes out there and it goes to press. And let's say it's, you know, what's a reasonable number of copies, recognizing that we're not Stephen King, so we're not selling to the world, we're writing to a niche. If I sell 5,000 copies, am I knocking the cover off the ball or am I just scratching the surface?
1: I mean, I have almost nothing, I think, that sells 5,000 or fewer. But I see many books on the market that are selling in the low hundreds. I mean, Mm -hmm. which is really stunning. Not for my company. I have... Security books that have sold, you know, 50,000, a hundred thousand copies. I have security books that will sell, you know, maybe seven to 10, but we're also, we also have to look at the ebook market. Basically I've got print, I've got ebook, I've got foreign rights sales. Those are three major contributors to revenue. So I look for books that where we have really decent rights sales because we pay half of whatever the rights sales are, Mm -hmm. the ebook sales on tech books for us are maybe 50, 50, some, it might be 60% ebook and 40% print. And that's not really what I want. I'd rather just the reverse. I'd rather sell like 60% print and 40% ebook because the authors are going to make more money on that. We don't get the same amount of money for an ebook sale because that's ebook sales amazing. are typically counted as reads. So it's a, just a, some little piece of the sale. So
0: not committing to any particular book, but just for ballpark. So a potential author says, if I'm going to sit down and spend hundreds and hundreds of hours and I deliver a quality book and it starts to sell, what are they looking at in terms of the remuneration? going to be measured in the hundreds, the thousands. Will they break 10 grand if they're doing well? it break a hundred grand. I have
1: authors who get $300,000 a year for royalties. I have authors who get $3,000. So the, I think the first thing is don't write to get rich. Don't write to replace your daytime job. I've got friends who do trainings in a weekend, taking a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Very unlikely that you're going to see that in revenue, but use, use the book to build a business, to build your brand, to make a contribution. And that's another reason why when you go to the publisher makes money, like publishers that are bringing out a hundred books a month, they're making money with aggregation by just collecting a bunch of stuff. Nickels and dimes, just sign everything you can put it out under POD, do nothing. And I'm sure you readers have seen books where it's like, oh my God, did anyone edit this? It's all over the market. That's not the case with my company. You might see a good idea and you pick it up. It's like, oh my God, this is terrible. That should, I never want to hear that about any of our books. But the first thing, and don't, don't quit your day job. I recognize that everyone, nearly every one of our authors has a day job. They're professional. Mm-hmm. That's why our authors set their own schedules. We're not going to be calling and saying, Hey, G Mark, I need the book in three weeks. I mean, the first thing I start with is when do you think you can finish? The author puts the date in the contract. Unless I feel like the market is slipping away, I'm going to say, okay, we'll see you the book in three years. Then it's our job to kind of help you stay on track and make sure that people have the direction and advice. But you, there are plenty of books in the market that sell almost nothing because there are so many books out. So I've got my sales and marketing team involved early. I've got editorial people. I've got Penguin House, my distributor, involved early. We catalog books about a year in advance. I'm going for the bigger sales. But when we're talking about bigger, we're not Stephen King here. I have, I thought Crash Course is my, my title. And that has sold better than any tech book I've seen in my entire lifetime. It's sold, our estimates are, in multiple languages, close to 2 million copies in print worldwide. Wow. I've never seen a book sell like this.
0: That's impressive. Now, it's, before you... I- I don't want to cut you off, but we're going to, in short on time, this is on, we could probably talk for another hour, but the one thing I definitely wanted to talk about was what you started back in 2016, the No Starch Press Foundation, which is renamed the Hacker Initiative. And that's a public charity and can make some significant impacts on people. And again, before the call, we're talking about the fact that you have to follow a lot of rules and it's not just, you you know, handing things out. Can you tell a little bit about some of the projects that you've funded in the past and then some of the things that people might look forward to as being a possible candidate? And I think your 2023 grant cycle is open right now, if that's not correct.
1: That's open now. The, I personally don't make any decisions. The board makes decisions. So it is a true public charity. When I named it the No Such Press Foundation, that was not an appropriate name. It's suggested private foundation. It's a public charity and it's basically run by the IRS and the Attorney General and I just do, you know, I'm the chair. So a couple of things that stand out I, that were interesting projects. We funded one group that is building a robotic arm to, to feed like an indigent population. And then the latest project that they had funded is a smart trash can, which is an interesting project, like something that could actually make a distinction, and I guess, potentially separate out different types of trash. We funded a project to create a free 5G network. And the idea was that you build this network so when people were remote and they had to go sign on to get internet subscription, not every family can afford that. The idea was you build a free network that people can use and connect up and get, like use that for teaching purposes. We funded a project to do some research into quantum. Will it move the quantum research forward? Who knows? But the point of the of Hacker Initiative is not to determine whether a project will fail or not, but to find to kind of support the idea. Just because someone fails at doing it doesn't mean the project was a failure. So, but the way it's structured is we have a programming committee, we have a mentorship committee, and the programming committee deals with the actual program of the nonprofit. So they're reviewing applications, which they then propose to the board. And ultimately the board reviews the shortlist and my other questions. And then the board signs off on it. And the board is made up of multiple people. So in terms of what they'll do this year, I don't know. I don't know what projects they're talking about. It's a, it's an arm's length thing. I don't, they'll, they will come to the board with proposals, but the best way to understand what we're looking for is to read the mission statement, because that's what we vote on. Like mm-hmm. there's a, it's registered with the IRS. It's approved by the IRS. That's what the, that's what we have to follow is our mission. And there's a set of exclusions. And when it comes to the board level, does it meet the mission of the nonprofit? Of the, of the charity? Does it violate any exclusions?
0: So if somebody had a really good idea that they just could use a little bit of help on the funding, how would they go ahead and contact the hacker initiative?
1: There's a Google form at uh, hackerinitiative.org, hackerinitiative.org, and fill out the form and it goes to the programming committee and then they begin to review it. And it's while there's a lot of focus on cybersecurity, it's not a cybersecurity-focused public charity. We define hackers broadly. So hackers could be someone in computer security, hackers could be someone building some new engineering project, someone doing some kind of experimental work in a lab, and we look for impact and measurable results. These are not my terms. These are charity terms. So we need to be able to show our donors that this is the impact. Otherwise it's like, oh, we send five kids to a program is not something we'll do. But if we help people to build something, five kids build something interesting that can then be shared widely It has real impact. That's something we've looked to fund.
0: That's really great. And I do appreciate both personally as well as professionally, what you've done because you've spent 30 years in this community. You've helped so many people, A, become authors, but then also for those people who are the consumers of the books to gain the knowledge and the professional capabilities to improve their careers. And you've really been at the nexus of that. And now the next generation here to be able to create a public charity and then allow that as a conduit for more good things. And so you've done an awful lot and continue to do a lot for this community. And for that, I want to thank you on behalf of all of our listeners who I am sure, if they were here, personally would like to say thank you in person. Sure. And it's really great. Any last thoughts before we wrap up? Anything, ideas you'd like to leave
1: us with? When I think about where InfoSec is today, I compare it to the medical field. Remember, I was on my way to join the medical field. And what I realized at the time, there were a massive number of of trade magazines. Everyone's got a specialty. And I see more and more of the communities like that. It's the field has matured dramatically. There are tons of companies, tons of funding. And I think there's a lot, probably a lot of feeling of the posture syndrome. Why not write any code or I don't know how to actually do malware analysis. and I can't use a debugger. So I think we need to recognize that there are specialties in the field and some people are amazing at certain things and don't know anything about anything else. Your endocrinologist might not know how to fix your knee and vice versa. So, I see in many ways a field that's ready to, and maybe already is, I'm sure, developing specialties. We've always had our heroes in the InfoSec community, but now we've got real standout people. This person is amazing as an assembly programmer. This person is amazing as a hardware hacker for you know, dealing with firmware. So much of it is apprentice work. So, I'm looking now at areas where I can fill in gaps. Like we recently pu- published a hardware hacking handbook, which is amazing like voltage attacks and stuff. Like it's really interesting work by Colin O'Flynn and Jasper von Woodberg. Like I looked for holes. Things were, because how many books do people need to buy in the course of a year? What I'd like is for each book that I bring out actually solves a problem, makes people a lot smarter. And if it's only 200 pages long, it's 200 great pages. It's not like 200 pages of fluff. So you had asked earlier about, and off call about the name No Starch Press. I think of it as basically meaning no bullshit. It doesn't, that's not a literal translation, right? But it's not stuffy. It's accessible. But I want people to pick up our books and like, and say, oh my God, this is amazing. Oh, it's got, th- I never understood that. When I published Hacking Art of Exploitation, people would say, this is the best description of a buffer overflow and it's five pages long. There were entire books written on buffer overflows. How much information do we actually need? You know, we need to understand stuff. We've got brains. We can go from there. I want people to be like... The reason I started a public charity is to unlock the potential. I want the community to drive that. I put in over a million dollars into that charity of my own money. And to give back to the community. Unfortunately, I've realized it's also a challenge to get people to understand what a public charity is. It's a lot more involved than I thought, but the money is still there. And we're looking for ways to make a difference with that money. And we need that insight from people or investment. And it's harder, a lot harder than I thought, but... I hope that when I look back at my life, as I do, that I think that I've made contributions to people's careers or opened up the possibility where someone said, I've been trying to understand this for 10 years. Thank you. I finally understand this. I don't right. write the books, but I try to make sure they're on track and right. that they get the job done.
0: Well, I thank you for all the work that you've done. And I think it's been wonderful. And I appreciate you being part of the CISO Tradecraft podcast. So this has been our guest, Bill Pollack. Thank you for listening. This is your host, G. Mark Hardy. If you're following us on your regular podcast channel, give us a five-star or a thumbs-up so others can find us as well. And if you haven't yet listened to us or watched us on YouTube, come on over and subscribe. You get to see my smiling face every week. And besides, it's going to help us reach even more people. And that's the way that you can contribute to our community by helping other people get the message out. So until next time, thank you for listening and stay safe out there.